You have a good week? You know, it's really a highlight. I don't know if Clifton mentioned it. It was $500 that we were able to give to that ministry. And what a, what a neat opportunity. So that was a highlight of our week. That was a really good part. Another highlight is I have um, one of my best buddies from high school here, Greg Arenas. You might have heard of him. He played um, tackle on uh, the American high school football team. And his wife, Debbie, you know, we, got, we get better all the time as we talk about it. And we love Debbie and Greg. We've known them for so many years. They're like family. They came and visited us at our Airbnb. Uh, we didn't charge them. Um, <laughs> But they're not the type that write on walls either, right? You know, I mean, children will sometimes write on walls. You don't usually have to worry about people writing on walls. God writes on walls. Did you know that? He does. God actually writes on walls. And, and that's what we're actually going to talk about today is a time in history where God actually wrote on some walls. And it's found again in Daniel. As we continue in Daniel, we're in chapter 5. And there's... 31 verses. So again, we'll just highlight the main verses as we go along and encourage you to go and read it for yourself when you go home today. And also read chapter 6 because we'll be in chapter 6 for next week. We'll continue to see that all nations are under God. God is in control. He's making this whole thing happen. And he's developing all these different circumstances and he's working through them. And so today we're going to talk about the fact that Daniel interprets writings on the wall. And we'll start off with the first five verses and we'll see that the king blasphemes God. Now, if this section today was made into a play, if you wanted the lead role, you would be King Belshazzar. Are you guys all familiar with King Belshazzar? Probably not. He's one of the main stumbling blocks to this book. A lot of people say this book of Daniel is not authentic. Truly, it was just made up and it's mythical. How do we know? Because Belshazzar doesn't exist. When we can look up people like Nebuchadnezzar, and we have all sorts of information on him, but who's Belshazzar? Until the 19th century. And in the 19th century, they found out all sorts of stuff about Belshazzar. And I share that with you because a lot of times people say, well, you know, we can't find things outside of the Bible, but repeatedly we do find them over and over again. If we don't find them, it probably just hasn't been discovered yet. Took a long time. People said, oh, there is no Belshazzar. Now for sure, we know there's a Belshazzar. So the big question is, who was Belshazzar? Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus, the co-regent of the Babylonian Empire. Do I need to say more? (laughs) You guys got it? You're all right? Okay, we move on. Um, Let me give you a little bit more than that. What happened to good old King Nebuchadnezzar? Because remember, we've been studying about Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar turns out to be a really good guy at the end, as we saw last week. And Nebuchadnezzar was one of and arguably the most powerful man in history in the sense that no man ever exercised such absolute power and control over the known population of his day than Nebuchadnezzar. But remember, Daniel had prophesied that his dynasty would end. And no sooner had he died after 43 years of ruling that things began to come unraveled. And people were fighting in the background. You know, they were starting to have upheaval. And pretty soon his dynasty was destroyed by revolts. And one of the guys who revolted against him was Nabonidus. And Nabonidus installed himself. He was made the new king. And though we're not absolutely certain for this, it seems pretty certain that in order to validate his rule, he married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. And they had a child, and the child's name was Belshazzar. But wait, there's more. Okay, there's more to this story. And I mean, this is the kind of thing that um, History Channel would love. I mean, it's not, you know, it gets all this drama and soap opera. I mean, it goes on and on. But, but here's basically what matters for us today is that 
he becomes the co-regent. He becomes ruler with his dad, and the problem seems to be about their religions. So, Nabonidus is from a place called Haran, where Abraham was originally from, and they worship. His mother was a high priestess to the sun god. And the sun, I mean the moon god, the moon god. And the moon god's name was Sin. So we can rightfully and justifiably say that dad was into sin. Okay? He was. He was into sin. And the sun was into Marduk. Marduk was the god that most of the people in Babylon proper, you know, the capital of Babylon, which is now modern-day Iraq, that's who they worshipped. And so it's kind of like Democrats, Republicans, you know. And so they, you know, either way, they, they had their two camps, and the camps are fighting against each other. And since the majority was for Marduk, it became uncomfortable. And from what we understand, Nabonidus said, oh, you just, you take care of this, I'm leaving. And he went over and he conquered Tima, this oasis in Saudi Arabia, and he began kind of wandering around the empire. And his dad, his son just stayed home and took care of Babylon. And this is where it gets kind of interesting. Nabonidus was trying to control all the problems in his empire, and he had a problem with a country, a little kingdom called Media. And he found a guy, a great warrior, by the name of Cyrus of Anson. And he went to Cyrus and he said, basically, I will support you financially and somewhat militarily if you'll take out Media. So Cyrus conquered Media. And then he combined it with the Persian people and he formed the Medo-Persian people. And then he attacked Lydia in modern-day Turkey. And guess what? Lydia belonged to Nabonidus in Babylon. Yeah. You see what's happening here? He supported him and then he turns around and attacks him. Think Afghanistan. We supported Afghanistan and then Afghanistan turns around and attacks us, in a sense. And so he's supporting this guy and the guy turns around and attacks him. And so... Next thing you know, he's marching on Babylon. And so Nabonidus is like, what? I, I trusted this guy. You know, now he's turning on me. I got to stop this. So he goes out to fight him, and he is vanquished in battles. He cannot stand up to Cyrus and the Medo-Persians. And so he finally just runs with his tail between his legs and heads back to Tima in Saudi Arabia. And now, the, now these guys, the, the Medo-Persians, are like 50 miles away from Babylon. But not to worry Nobody has stormed Babylon for 1,000 years. Babylon is impregnable. Nebuchadnezzar built walls that were 300 feet high. They were wide enough for four chariots to go over the top of them. They had 100 gates. And historians at the time said that they had enough food stocked away that they could last for seven years. Would you still be worried a little bit? What if you were the co-regent? the guy in charge of Babylon, what would you do in a time like this? I'll tell you, this is where our story begins. King Belshazzar, waiting in Babylon, does what a lot of people did in Babylon without the beach blanket, but, they, but, you know, they, but what they did is they had a party. He throws a lavish party, and he gets probably rip-roaring drunk. That's what he does. And we say, well, Why? Um, what was this? Was it for a special occasion? They had a lot of parties. One of the best explanations I've heard is that he brings in the military and he's probably going to talk strategy with them. What are we going to do when these guys come? How can we prepare? But he's just trying to get everybody together and he's trying to get everybody to see that he's in control and he's the boss and they can trust in him. And so he throws this party and they're all drinking a lot at this party. And while he's at this party, he brings all of his 
He brings all of his wives, all of his concubines, you know, with him, and they're all in, and they're all partying and having fun. And suddenly he says to one of the servants there, he says, why don't you go get the vessels that have been stored away for 66 years in the treasury from that old temple in Judah, in Jerusalem? I remember my father, Nebuchadnezzar, he was actually his grandfather, but he would be like my predecessor or my ancestor. I remember my father, Nebuchadnezzar, conquered those people. And years ago, he took those vessels, bring those vessels out. Remember in the first chapter, Nebuchadnezzar had not yet really conquered Judea, but he basically went, Judah, but he went and he said, I want you guys to bow down to my rule. And he kind of roughed them up a bit. And he took some captives, among them Daniel, and he also went and he took these very expensive and very priceless, really, um, vessels that were used. And we don't know, we know they were used for, for purpose of worship, but we don't know exactly what they were. And he took them out of the temple. And, God, and, the, and Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was doing it on his own, but God had put it in his mind to do it because God wanted to save those from destruction. And so Nebuchadnezzar takes them home and they sit in the treasury for 66 years. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, later goes back and he destroys all of Jerusalem. So had they still been there, they would have been destroyed. I really am a little reluctant to say this because it may step on some toes, but they think the ark was destroyed then. Kind of ruins the movie, but, you know, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, it may have been destroyed during that time. So if you're a Raiders of the Ark fan, we don't know for sure, I guess, you know, but they think it was destroyed then because everything else was destroyed, but these vessels were still there. So he brings out the vessels, and he starts using them for drinking and eating and so forth, and then he starts using them for toasting the different idols he has around there. That's blasphemy. So I looked it up. They said he blasphemed. So I said, well, what does blasphemy really mean? And I looked it up. And it says it is the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence to a deity or sacred object. Would that fall in this category? It definitely does. Um, Tempered Longman III, a distinguished professor at um, Westmont University, whose name, as we've said before, kind of makes it is a distinguished name. Um, Tremper Logman III, find it fun to say. He said, um, he spits in God's eye and then expects lifeless hunks he created to protect him. Isn't that a good way to say it? He spits in God's eye and then he expects these lifeless hunks, these idols, to protect him. So he's blaspheming God. And, and, he, and he can't help but ask, Why? Uh, and certainly he's been drinking. But it seems to be that he, it's almost like he's saying, you think Nebuchadnezzar was powerful. Nebuchadnezzar was afraid of this God a little bit. He respected this God of this little place, Judah. He would never even take these vessels out. But look at me, how bold I am. You can follow me. I'm the man. The first question I want to ask you today is, do you ever you know, blaspheme God? I mean, sometimes we think simple, in simple ways, and I think it's not even intended. Sometimes we, you know, we'll, we'll use God's name in sort of a flippant way, oh God, and that kind of thing. And that's, you know, we got to be careful of that because that's, you know, blasphemy is, is kind of being disrespectful to God's name. We wouldn't, wouldn't want somebody to talk about us that way. Um, but Longman points out that we no longer have a temple or vessels. But the Bible 
overwhelmingly in the New Testament says that we are God's temple. If we are God's temple, then how do you treat other brothers and sisters in Christ? If you treat them disrespectfully or insensitively or patronize them, what are you doing to God? If all people are made in the image of God, he goes on to say, then how you treat people is how you're treating what God has created. He says, how about, how about our environment? If somebody destroyed your painting, if they marred your garden, if they tore down your building, how would you feel? Is that not what we do with God's creation when we mistreat it? Now, obviously, we can take these things to extreme, and we do that sometimes, but the basic idea we need to keep in mind is that these things are all part of God's kingdom, and they're all a reflection of who he is. Jesus says it well in Matthew chapter 25, verse 45. He says, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. As you didn't treat others the way you should, you didn't treat me the way you should. And he says it the other way, too. As you treated other people this way, you know, you were treating me well. The basic idea is the way you treat people is the way you would treat Jesus. And that's a good, good thing to keep in mind. Is that the way you would treat Jesus? Is that the way you would treat what he's given us? Is that the way you treat his planet, his garden, his beauty? So it's a good way for us to catch ourselves and think through that and maybe something to think through or even talk through this week. This guy was way over the top. Sometimes we do it almost accidentally, but he was purposefully, purposefully blaspheming God. So it goes on and we learn that a hand writes on the wall from verses 5 through 12. It happens. Okay, well, while he's there, what we said happens. God writes on the wall. This hand comes out of nowhere, and it just starts writing on the wall. Think about how the Bible even influences modern culture. Remember Thing in the Adams family? It had the hand long before Thing, the God. And I think God has, I know God has a sense of humor. You know, we read so much of Scripture. A lot of it is very funny and sometimes kind of humorous and sarcastic and so forth. But, but God gets their attention. He, he does it in a fancy style. He comes out with a hand, and he starts writing on the wall. In 1899, we found the wall. But it wasn't intact. It was all beat up. But what we did found is it was made of a substance. I think it was called gypsum, which is very bright, very bright white color. So you put the writing on it, it, it would pop, especially with a, like a flaming lamp next to it at night. So it was just very bright. And bang, he sees it. And how does Belshazzar respond to it? He is not his grandpa's son. He's nothing like Nebuchadnezzar. This guy has never seen any warfare. He's, he's been born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's a rich, snobby boy, you know, who's trying to impress everybody how tough he is. And when he sees this, his face turns ashen. And the Aramaic, which is the language this is written in, the language of the Babylonians, says that his hips and his legs start shaking. And it actually refers to the fact that he lost his bodily functions. So uh, it was an embarrassing moment for the, uh, for the king. He, and he, he basically fell apart. He was so frightened. And what he does 
is, you know, goes and changes his clothes, and then he comes back, and then he says, you know, where are the, the, where are the wise men? And he calls the, these inept wise men, and he says, if you interpret this for me, here's what I will offer you. I will offer you this fabulously expensive purple cloth or a chain of gold, both of which symbolize royalty. In fact, I'll make you third in, in control of the whole kingdom. My father is number one, I'm number two, you will be number three. If you'll just interpret this. Now, it's written in Aramaic. It's written in their own language, but it's a riddle. And no one can figure out the riddle. And so then the queen comes in and we say, well, wait a minute, aren't his queens already with him? When they refer to queen in this way in the ancient world, they're, they're talking about the mama queen. The, the queen mother comes in. She's in the back room watching Wheel of Fortune. And suddenly, suddenly, she, she hears about this problem. She comes out to check on her boy and she says, what's going on? She's probably Queen Necrotus, a very famous queen known for her great wisdom, uh, seems to be the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And she comes out and she basically says, do you remember? Don't, don't, you, don't you remember that there is a man that can do this? There is a man. He, he, he had a spirit like the holy gods. And in Aramaic, she may have actually said he had a spirit like the holy God. She seems to recognize like her father did, that there is one, one God that is above all the others, if she doesn't recognize that he is the true God. And she says, uh, your grandfather used to call him by his Babylonian name, Balthasar, but we call him Daniel. He's still around. He's about 81 years old now. Remember we started when he was a teenager? He's about 81 years old now, probably in semi-retirement. She says, he can answer your problems. I want to take a break from the action and ask you another question, though, here. I want to ask you the question of, um, is God writing on your wall? Is God writing on your wall? Metaphorically, of course. You know, hopefully you don't wake up and see things written on your wall. Um, that may not be God. probably isn't. Um, especially if you have kids, little kids. Um, but, but God writes metaphorically on our walls. And it you know, you stop and think about it. There are events in our life that God does to get our attention. Does he get our attention? When a relationship ends, sometimes we get upset with God, but maybe that's the time that God is allowing that relationship to end so that he can cause us to realize how important he is and that we develop a relationship with him that will take us deeper and bring far more meaning than that other relationship would have taken. When our health breaks, do we feel sorry for ourselves sitting on the couch, you know, not able to get up or whatever, or is it a time for us to draw close to the God of the universe? Is God getting our attention? Or are we turning away from him? When we don't get the promotion or we lose the job, you see what I'm saying? We don't make the team. The tendency is to say, God, you're so unfair. God, how can you be so hard on me? And yet maybe God is getting our attention the same you made that team too important. You made that job too important. You made that person too important. What really matters is a relationship with me. And out of that is going to come so many different wonderful things. I believe God is doing all sorts of things. Sometimes they're subtle. Sometimes they're big. Sometimes it's just looking at the sunset and God gets our attention. And do we stop at that moment and say, this is incredible. There is a God out there that's so huge, and I know you, and, and I'm overwhelmed by your presence. Or do we say, oh, what else did I, what did I come out here for? 
and we're off doing something else. God is getting our attention. I'm reading a book right now about a person who, who doesn't know God. Um, he was a famous football player, um, autobiography, who um, has a Mormon background. We've talked before that Mormons are not the same. You know, you always come and talk to me about this, but not the same as Christianity. It's different. And it's interesting reading about his life because he's, I cringe when I read it. It reminds me of myself before I knew Christ or when I was young in my faith. He keeps trying to do things to please God. He keeps trying to do things to please people. And he's the nicest guy in the world. And he's trying so hard to do the right things. And he's just so overwhelmed by it all. Of, you know, he's got to get married and he's got to not eat this or not do this. And he's got to please this person. And he just, it's just overwhelming because he's trying to do it on his own. And God keeps showing up and writing on the wall. And he keeps having these things happen in his life that overwhelm him. And he keeps having these Christians come in his life that God puts in his life. And he doesn't respond. In fact, he, he never questions his faith. He, he basically never questions what's true or what's false in life. He doesn't look for any evidence for what he believes in. He just kind of goes with the flow and doesn't want to rock anything. Um, and sometimes we can get that way in our own lives. And God wants to shake us up. And I've noticed that not only does he bring events into our life, but he also brings people in our lives at those times. And so pay attention to what God might be doing in your life this week. And stop and think, where do I need to grow in my relationship with God? And what is he trying to get my attention for? So I really encourage you to do that. If you don't know Jesus, you need to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Believe that Jesus died on the cross um, for your sins and that he rose from the grave. Um, and you need to choose to, to receive Christ. You know, put your faith in him and um, follow him for the rest of your life. And if you haven't done that, we encourage you to come and talk to us about that. Now, we're going to conclude with the fact that Daniel interprets a dream. So, so Daniel comes into the room, and Belshazzar, and he's just kind of this young, brash king. That's the impression, at least, I get. He sits down with this great man, Daniel, whom he's, all that's been said about him, and he says... Oh, he says, uh, aren't you one of the captives of Judah that my father, Nebuchadnezzar, brought here years ago? Just kind of puts him down. And then he says, oh, my mom told me some good things about you. Um, maybe you can help me with this problem. It's just very rude. And it's almost like, it's almost like I'm going to put you down to start with so that I get you under me. And now we'll, we'll proceed from there. So how does Daniel respond to this? I think the best way to understand that is to get that in his own words. So we're going to pick this up today in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast 
and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. See a little bit of different Daniel here. He's not respectful. You're supposed to go and say, oh, long live the king. He basically says, let's get down to business here. I don't care about getting any of your presents. I don't need those. I'm 81 years old. I don't really care anymore. But I can tell you this. I knew your dad. It's kind of like, um, king, I knew Nebuchadnezzar, and you were not Nebuchadnezzar. You know, kind of like, you know, so think about, and that's basically what he says. He says, you are not Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was a great king, but he was a proud man. He was great because God made him great, and he got proud, and then he turned to God, and he became greater because he followed God afterwards. He changed him. He said, and look at you. He said, and here's the key. Here's the key to the whole thing. And I was kind of feeling sorry for Belshazzar earlier, but then I read this. But you knew all this. At first, I didn't think he knew. But he knew. He knew all about Nebuchadnezzar. He knew all that had happened. I mean, that's a good thing for us to think about because, you know, God knows. You know, we try to excuse ourselves. So I just didn't know about it. You do know. God will make you known. There's nobody who ever dies apart from having an opportunity to know. But you know what you need to know. And a lot of it is how you respond to whom God brings into your life and what he brings into your life. Are you going to respond or aren't you? And this guy had it. He may not have known his grandfather, but he knew all about how his grandfather had turned to God. And he looked down on him for it. And he was going to be better than him. And so here his grandfather was proud, encountered God, and turned to him. But he was proud, encountered God, and turned away. And, and Daniel says, you're in deep trouble because of this. And he just nails him verbally to the wall. I don't want anything from you. I just want you to know that you are messing up, that you are making a mistake here, that you think you're greater than you are. And then he goes on, he says, now I'll tell you, now that I've kind of got that off my chest, I'll tell you the interpretation. And this is what he says, starting in verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel, parson, and this is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Pelshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night... Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. 
And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So he basically says this. He says, um, what, it, what it reads is numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. What does it mean? Daniel says, all your days are numbered. Can I tell you that? Every single person in this room, all your days are numbered. God has numbered all of your days. But he's using it in another sense is that not only your days are numbered, but the numbers have come to an end. And from this, we get the saying, your days are numbered. You know, we have the one saying when you're in trouble with work, you know, whatever, and they say the writing's on the wall. And then the other one, your days are numbered. And it comes right from this. And the fact that he uses it twice, Daniel doesn't say this, but most scholars believe that he uses it twice to talk about how imminent it is. In other words, your days are really numbered. Like, I'm not just saying it's coming to the end. It's you're there right now. And then he says, the reason why is because God has weighed your life. He has measured the kind of person you are. He has seen that you have turned against him and are unrepentant. And he has determined that you are wanting. You do not measure up. Have you ever heard that saying? That comes basically from this too. Your life is not measured up. And then he says, the result is your kingdom will be divided. It's all going down. And you're going to be conquered. And you're going to be conquered by, conquered by the Medo-Persians. And the word parson, which is an Aramaic word, is probably chosen because it's a play on words, because it sounds like the Akkadian word, or the Aramaic word for Persian. So he's kind of playing with them a little bit here and says, they're going to conquer you. So while he's saying this, the Babylonians are at the gates. And General Ugbaru, General Ugbaru is one of the great generals for Cyrus, and he figures out a way to take the moats and he creates a channel and they, they drain the moat. They wade into what's left, they clamber over the hill, the, the, the um, the gate with a gate in the and um, and the wall with nobody expecting, and they conquer Babylon. The Babylonian Empire falls in one night. Perhaps never before in history has such a powerful kingdom been defeated with such relative ease. And the documents outside of the Bible tell us that the people were still partying into the night and didn't know until the next morning they'd been conquered. They just they just snuck right in. And they went into the palace, of course, and there they found Belshazzar, and they executed him on the spot. Everything came true, just as he said it had, and just as he said it would. And so it's really kind of, wow, you know, pretty heavy stuff. Um, so he's killed, and Darius becomes the king, and we're not going to talk about that, because that's a puzzle in itself. So we'll talk about that next week. So come back, and we'll learn more about who Darius was. But... A couple of questions, again, that I have for you. One is, do you learn from the mistakes of others? Have you ever thought about that? Do you learn from the mistakes of others? I remember my parents telling me when I was a kid, you know, I find myself acting like my dad or my mom, and I don't want to, but I just do. And I thought, well, that's weird, until I became a parent, and I do that too. I mean, even when you say, I didn't like that about my parent, I wish, I wish my dad didn't do that, and then you do that. How does that happen? It just, you know, it, because it's around you and you pick it up. And, and you can do the same thing with your boss. You say, I, I can't stand that boss. Then you get into the level of leadership and you begin behaving just like that boss. 
That's how dysfunctions get passed down at work and at home, is we, we continue to follow the bad examples instead of learning from the bad examples of those people who have been put in authority over us. Better still to learn from good examples. So I, I really encourage you to find people in your life that you can learn from. I've always looked for that, and I think it's one of the best things for me is I've had older, wiser, more experienced people in my life that, I've, that have helped me. And even just good friends that you learn from. Even, you know, buddies like Greg, you know, through the years. That, you know, you learn from one another. And you pick up things, you know, qualities. say, well, I really like the way they do that. And that really ties in well with the Bible. And, and you can learn and grow from that area. So find people that you can learn from. But understand that you're never going to find the perfect person. That's Jesus. Stop and think about this in our lives. Your days are numbered. We don't know. This could be it today. We don't know. You have been found, you've been measured, and your life has been found wanting. None of you will ever measure up to God's perfection. You deserved to lose everything you have. And by the way, it will all go up in smoke one day anyway. And you will die and you will be destroyed. God knows that. And that's why he sent Jesus. Because if you come into a relationship with Jesus, he died on the cross to pay the price for you. So you don't have to measure up. You measure up because you're in a relationship with him, not because of anything you've done other than that you've surrendered your life to the living God. And that turns it all around for us. And that takes all the pressure away. And that brings us joy and peace. And that gives us the perfect example of who to follow. Our personalities are all different. So we're not going to just be like Jesus, obviously, but we can learn from his character traits that he gives us that are universal. Regardless of what your personality is, you can still follow his example. And know that when you fail, that you're forgiven. And you need only just make it right with him, tell him, I'm sorry about that. Get it out, get it off your chest, and move on. And so we have the joy of that. Um, finally, I want us to think of one more thing, and that is, do we think we're invincible? Do you ever feel like you're invincible? Look at these countries that were so powerful. Babylonian Empire... It fell. What happened to the Medo-Persians? They were conquered by the Greeks. What happened to the Greeks under Alexander? He died and it all fell apart. The Romans came into power. They fell. The barbarian groups tried to pull things together, eventually reached their climax with uh, Charlemagne and the Carlinian dynasty. They fell. The Vikings dispersed. The Ottoman Empire fell. Napoleon and the French fell. Germany fell, Italy, Japan, Russia. Where's America in this? Not mentioned, and it's not mentioned in the end times either. Don't put your faith in a nation, because the nation will fall at some point. Don't put your faith in a person because the person will fail you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And be honest about the fact that we're all only human beings, and life only lasts a certain time. So just 
you know, enjoy life. Have fun. Enjoy the gifts and abilities God has given you. Enjoy the pleasures of his kingdom and the beauty of the outdoors and the people in your life. And enjoy your relationship with him. Prepare your day for days for like Mitch was singing today, and then we'll be with him forever in heaven, and we'll have those relationships. You know, today we learned about God writing on the wall in Daniel. God is not recorded as writing on the wall in the New Testament. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, we learn that he writes a letter on our hearts. It says, And you show that you are a letter from God delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. May others read God's writings on our hearts as they watch our lives. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for writing on our hearts. Thank you that what you write on our hearts is so much more important than what you wrote on that wall. Thank you that we have a relationship with you and we pray that as we grow with you that we would enjoy the pleasure of your company and the pleasure of others that know you um, and be a, a witness and example to those that don't. Thank you for how we can learn from things from so long ago. Thank you for Daniel's example. Um, pray that we could be people that live with wisdom and have examples for you in our lives too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.